0: 1 Corinthians 2:14 through 16. The unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no man. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Let me try to sum up where we have come so far in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2 so that we can put today's text in the context of of what we've seen so far. Turn with me to chapter 1, verse 2. And I'll try to just take you with me on a little tour through what we've seen so that where we are will make more sense. Chapter 1, verse 2. Paul refers to the church that he's writing to as those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Notice, he calls the whole church saints, even though he knows that there are inauthentic believers, that is, false professors among the church. You can know that from chapter 11, verse 19. There must be factions that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. And he says in chapter 13, verse 5 of 2 Corinthians, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. So he knows that among these people to whom he's talking, there are some genuine and some inauthentic people. But in the judgment of charity, he looks out over the church in the eye of his mind and says... Saints called. But then in verse 8, he tells us what will mark out the saints. Namely, they are going to be sustained or confirmed to the end in faith. Verse 8, he will sustain or confirm you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. How does he know that? Verse 9 God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So those whom He calls, He keeps. Those who are called are confirmed to the end, He says. And this is a precious dimension of God's sovereignty, isn't it? That those of us who have tasted the call of God in our lives, have felt ourselves drawn into the fellowship of the Son we don't have to bank on our power to sustain us to the end. We can look away from ourselves to the faithfulness of God and hear the promise of Romans eleven twenty nine, 29, which says, the call of God is irrevocable. So those who he calls, he keeps, and that's the mark of a called person. They persevere to the end in faith. This is very hopeful and very humbling, isn't it? God does the calling. God does the keeping. And therefore, we're humbled. It wasn't us who got ourselves called. It wasn't us who got ourselves kept. But it's hopeful, too, because the faithfulness of God is the strongest thing you could rely on in all the world. Now you keep reading and you get sad because you see in verses 10 to 17 of chapter 1 that there are divisions and boasting. They're lining up behind their favorite teachers. I belong to Paul. I belong to Apollos. I belong to Cephas. And bragging about the superiorities of their teacher over another teacher. And Paul has to deal with pride. It's the main problem in this church. And what's the main weapon with which he deals with this pride? The cross. Now let me read some verses so that you can see that. Verse 13. Was Paul crucified for you? Answer no. So don't boast in me. Verse 17. Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So don't boast in man's oratory. Don't boast in man's intellectual prowess. Boast in God. Verse 18. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Verse 23. We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So don't boast, he says, in what is exalted among men. Don't boast in that because God has revealed his wisdom and his power in ways that look weak and foolish to the world. And so if you try to look for something to boast in, you'll find yourself heading in the directly wrong way. He ends the chapter with a negative statement of his goal. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And again, positively in verse 31, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. But he's not done yet. Even though he's using the cross all the way through, He's not done with defeating pride. Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2. He picks up the same theme of verse 17. And he says, I didn't come preaching in lofty words of wisdom. Verse 1. He says again in verse 3, I came in weakness and and fear and trembling. And then he says why he did in verse 2. For I decided to know nothing among you save Christ and Him crucified. In other words, what he's saying in verses 1 to 5 is that I want not only my teaching, I want my whole life to be a living illustration of what happens when a person no longer leaves Christ in the dim, dark past as a place of substitution, but brings it right into the present as a place of execution. The execution of his own pride and self-reliance and boasting. He wants to be a living demonstration of a dying to self and a living to God in verses 1 to 5. Now, what's he going to do? Which way is he going to go at this point in his thinking? That's where we left off last Sunday. We picked it up in the Sunday evening at verse 6 and went on through verse 13. So some of you have seen what I'm going to survey right now. What does he do in verses 6 following? He corrects, first of all... A misimpression, a possible false impression. What would that be? Well, he has assaulted wisdom violently in these first verses of this book. Let me show you. Verse 17, Christ did not send me to preach with eloquent wisdom. Verse 20, where is the wise man? Verse 21, the world did not know God through wisdom. Wisdom. Verse 22, Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ. Verse 26, not many of you were wise. God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Verse 1 of chapter 2, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God in lofty words of wisdom. Verse 4 of chapter 2, My words were not implausible words of wisdom. So wisdom is clearly taking it on the chin in these verses, right? The false impression would be there's no place for wisdom in the Christian life. And Paul knows he's created that impression. And therefore, he says in verse six, yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age. And then in verse 7 he says it's a hidden or in mystery he reveals a wisdom of God. In verse 13, if you want to drop down there, it says we impart this not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit. So Paul is distinguishing two kinds of wisdom, right? A wisdom that he rejects called The wisdom of this age in verse 6 and the human wisdom in verse 13 and the wisdom that he asserts is the wisdom of God in verse 7. Now, let's ask a few questions about this wisdom. Let's ask where it comes from and what is it? What's the content of it? All right. Where does it come from? Second half of verse 7. He says that this wisdom is what God decreed before the ages for our glory. What God decreed before the ages. And then verse 9, he says that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has it ever entered up into the heart of man. That's the literal translation. What God prepared for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. Let's paraphrase Romans 8. Verse 28. Verse 10 says, God has revealed this to us through the Spirit. So there's no basis for boasting, is there? The wisdom comes from God. That's the answer to the first question. God decreed the wisdom. We didn't get it by what we saw, we didn't get it by what we heard, and we didn't get it by thinking it up in our hearts. God revealed this wisdom through inspiration to his apostles who now teach it in words taught by the Holy Spirit. And you can't boast in a gift, can you? Well, you might think you can. Sometimes little children try to on Christmas morning. I got a better present than you got, which is a very grave thing to say. In Paul's mind, you can't boast in a gift. Look at chapter 4, verse 7. Second half of the verse, chapter 4, verse 7, it says, What do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as though it were not a gift? So it's obvious that in Paul's mind, it's absolutely inconsistent to boast in gifts. They are free. They're not owing to anything you can boast in. So Christian wisdom is in that category, the source of it is God, and therefore he is still trying to remove the foundation for boasting, isn't he? Where or what is it now? That was the first question. Where did it come from? Second question, what is this wisdom? Two definitions I've seen in this text so far. Let's go back to the very seminal verses 23 and 24 of chapter 1 for the first definition of wisdom. Chapter 1, verse 23 and 24, over against the wisdom of the world, which, which stirs up boasting in our lives. He says, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, the power of God, and here it is, the wisdom of God. So how would you define the wisdom of God from those two verses? I would define it as... Christ crucified, or the preaching of the cross. So that's one definition of of the wisdom of God. Here's another one. Chapter 2, verses 7 and 9. In verse 7, God decreed this wisdom before the world for our glory. There's something about the pathway to glory that is the wisdom of God. Or look at verse 9. Almost the same thing in different words. It says... That no eye has seen this wisdom, no ear has ever heard it, no man ever dreamed it up. And then he defines it. What God has prepared for those who love him. So in verse 7, it's the decree of our glory and how to get there. And verse 9, it is the unimaginable, undream glory Promise to those who love God. Now, we've got two definitions. Let's bring them together and see if we can make sense out of this. Chapter 1 definition from verse 23 and 24. Christ crucified. The preaching of the cross is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Chapter 2, verse 7 and 9. The wisdom of God is the pathway to glory. And it is an unimaginably great destiny decreed by God for all his people. Now let's put them together. What's the relationship between these two? Verse 8, I think, is probably the best conjunction of these two definitions. None of the rulers of this age understood this wisdom of God. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. There's the conjunction. The cross Glory. Now, what is the wisdom of God? Let me try a, a sentence on you that sums it all up. The wisdom of God is the inheritance of an unimaginably glorious future with God obtained by means of a pride-shattering faith in a bloody weak, foolish, crucified Jewish teacher who is none other than the Lord of glory. Or to put it another way, the wisdom of God is the revelation that the pathway to glory is the Calvary road, both for the Messiah and for you. That's the wisdom of God, which men regard as foolishness and weakness. That's the context of our text today, verses 14 to 16. Paul has stressed in verses 9 to 13 of our text, which we looked at last Sunday night, That the wisdom of God is a gift. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit by revelation to the minds of the apostles. Taught to us in words taught by the Holy Spirit. And we dare not boast in it at all. But might we not boast in the ability to recognize it as wisdom and receive it? You see, there are a lot of people who are willing... To say salvation is a gift, revelation is a gift, the wisdom of God is a gift in general. But many of those very same people will say, I must preserve for myself the moral ability to recognize that wisdom and receive it on my own. And therein lies another foothold for boasting. What's wrong with you? Can't you see? I saw. Get as smart as me. The longer I've studied these verses 14, 15, and 16, the more I have become persuaded that the reason Paul wrote them was to remove that foothold for boasting. These verses teach us, as we'll see in a moment, that not only is the wisdom of God a gift in general by virtue of revelation and inspiration, but it is a gift in particular by virtue of the fact that only by the power of the Holy Spirit can we recognize it and receive it. Verse 13, at the end, you see the phrase, interpreting spiritual truths to those who possess the Spirit or literally to spiritual persons, spiritual ones. The spiritual truth is no doubt there the wisdom of God and the revelation of God. And the implication of that verse seems to be that there's only a group of people who are going to receive this. There's only a group of spiritual people who are going to accept the interpretation that the Apostle has to give of the wisdom of God. And that's exactly what verses 14 to 16 were written to confirm and to explain. So let's look at these verses. Verse 14. The unspiritual man does not receive the gifts of the Spirit of God. Or more literally, the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. Who's a natural man? A natural man is a man without the Holy Spirit. A natural person is a person who is merely human. In fact, next Sunday's message is entitled, The Danger of Being Merely Human." As mere humans, we have no divine work within us, no special enabling grace, no ministry of the Holy Spirit. We have one birth, our physical birth. And as such, Paul says here, we do not receive spiritual truth. We will not. We do not esteem it. We do not value it. We reject it. Why? The next phrase in the text tells us why. For these truths are folly or foolishness to the natural man. Now, that word foolishness ought to ring about five bells in your head if you've been here for the past four weeks. It's all over the place in chapter 1. He's never left the foolishness of the cross. Verse 18 Chapter one, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. Verse 23, we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. It's the same word as we have right here in verse 14. If you want to know what the spiritual things are that a natural man regards as folly, all you do is go back a few verses and read cross, cross, cross. It's the word of the cross. It's the statement that to glory you have to walk the Calvary road. This is the folly that a natural man sees. According to verse 14, rejects. But that's not all. There's something worse here. There's a bondage. A terrible bondage, isn't there? Verse 14 continues, He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned or spiritually assessed. Now I want you to notice the ominous shift from the does not receive them to the cannot understand them. That's ominous. That's frightening. That's bondage. Apart from the Holy Spirit, which constitutes us as spiritual, our moral character is so proud, so hard, so rebellious against the cross of Christ and the summons to die there, that it cannot see it. We have moved from a will not to a cannot. That is the bondage of moral blindness. But, take note, moral blindness rooted in rebellion does not free from moral accountability. Moral blindness rooted in rebellion does not free you from being responsible to believe, to see the beauty of the cross, which it is. Because the only thing holding a natural man back is pride. And pride does not remove accountability. So at the end of verse 14, what do we see? That the things of the Spirit of God are spiritually discerned or assessed. What does that mean? It means that we have to have the Holy Spirit transforming our character, humbling us, freeing us from our rebellion and our pride so that we are able to own up to the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, hanging On the cross, without the Holy Spirit taking the irrational bondage of pride away from us, we will not own up to it. And mark this, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is never to make you do one thing you don't want to do. All that the Holy Spirit does is take the muscle man of pride, who's holding you captive and blinding you with the irrational impulses of boasting and rebellion, and he slays him and frees you to be reasonable and recognize glory when you see it and beauty when you have it. The only free people in the world are people who have been liberated from the bondage of the irrational impulses of human Pride. What's the difference between a natural man and a a spiritual man? Let's go back to those seminal verses in chapter 1 again. Verse 23 and 24. The words natural and spiritual do not occur in these two verses. But I want you to ask the question as I read them. What's the watershed between the natural man and the spiritual man in these two verses? We preach Christ crucified, stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. That's the response of the natural man, right? But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. There's the response of the spiritual man. What's the watershed? What's the division? The call of God, right? Those who are called see. So they're the spiritual ones. So what constitutes you as spiritual is the call of God in your life. And this is so helpful for me to see because I want to see the harmony and the unity of Scripture and I know from the Gospel of John, for example, that you have Jesus, the Good Shepherd, calling people. The sheep hear His voice. They recognize it and they follow Him. That's the call of God into His fellowship. But back in chapter 3, it said, The wind blows where it wills. The Spirit blows where He wills. Nobody knows where it comes from or where it's going to. And so are all who are born by the Spirit. Born of the Spirit, called by the Shepherd, are exactly the same reality. And so, it was delightful, it is beautiful, it is affirming to see in this writer, you have in chapter 1, the call of God, separating those who can see and those who can't see. And you have in the second chapter, the division called spiritual and natural, meaning Holy Spirit driven and those left in the rebellion of their evil hearts. Verses 15 to 16, we can just perhaps pass over with a brief paraphrase as we close to describe who this spiritual person is. Let's read these. Verse 15, the spiritual man, that is the person changed by the Spirit, called into fellowship by the Spirit, Judges all things. What does that mean? I think it means he approves and assesses correctly all the things of the Spirit revealed by the apostles and in their writings. In other words, he forms right judgments about the truth of Scripture and about the truth of spiritual realities. Second half of the verse, but he himself is judged by no one that is rightly assessed by no one. That is the natural man. Doesn't any more understand the spiritual man than the man in the moon. And that makes perfectly clear sense because if the natural man looks at the cross and the, and the Calvary road leading to glory and sees only folly and foolishness and has not attracted in the least, then if he looks at somebody who loves the cross, who's on the way to glory and loves Christ, who stakes his whole life on the cross, that man will be a blank a conundrum, a riddle, a mystery. I think that's what it means when it says the spiritual man is not judged, that is rightly judged or assessed by anybody. And then finally, verse 16, the reason is a question for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, and you have to always turn rhetorical questions into statements. So the statement is, for no one, no natural man, no one without the assistance of the Holy Spirit has ever penetrated the mind of God. And that's exactly what verse 11 says. If you want to go back up for confirmation of that. Second half of verse 11 says, No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Without the Spirit of God, we don't know God. But... And then the verse ends, and we end this morning. There is a people who, by virtue of the work of the Holy Spirit and the call of God in their lives, have been granted to be liberated from the monstrous, enslaving bondage of pride. They have been broken by the word of the cross. The eyes of their hearts have been opened And like the sun coming up on a new morning after a long, dark night, the cross is radiant with the glory of God and draws them in and they embrace it freely as the hope of their lives and the love of their Valentine affection. And that's nothing other than to say they have the mind of Christ which is the way the verse ends. That's the mind of Christ. To see the cross for what it really is and to embrace it. And so I close with this admonition and plea. There are two groups of people sitting in front of me. A big one, I am sure, called spiritual people. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And the point of this text for you is to realize afresh you owe it all to God. The point of this text for you is just to endear you afresh to God and to Christ crucified and to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life and to give up all proud boasting in any spiritual achievement of your own and say, it's all of God And I'm his child, held in his hands, called and kept to glory. And there is a promise out there no eye has seen or ear heard, nor has it ever entered up into the heart of man. Oh, I can hardly wait to get there by the grace of God. I hope that's the response of the call this morning. And then there's another smaller group here called natural people. Because you're still in rebellion against the cross. Your pride still holds you fast. You look at the cross and you hear me preach Christ crucified and it is distasteful. The thought of dying to yourself, giving up worldly pleasures, depending wholly on a crucified Savior is something that does not attract you. And yet it may be this morning that God, through the word of the cross, is boring his hole through the calluses on your heart and trying to get at you. And I plead with you right now, I plead with you to consider your dangerous condition without Christ. And I plead with you to look to Christ and ask yourself, is not this exactly what I need? Is not a substitutionary, crucified Lord of glory in the place of sinners exactly what my heart condemning me right now for my sin needs? Is there any other answer to my sin? And then consider what a dangerous thing it would be to stay in your sin. Consider what a glory is offered to those who believe. And then hear the promise. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Or the way it's stated back in chapter 21. It pleased the Lord by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. I commend Christ to you this morning as infinitely worthy of your Valentine's affection. Let's pray together.